You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Susan Hudson with Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am here with my wonderful friends, Dr. Carrie Bedient from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hey! And Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, everybody. How are you all doing today? Excellent. I was trying to resist the urge to break into song and think of our new theme song as we were talking, but I'll save that. <gasps> Tell our listeners what topic we were talking about, Carrie, and then I think you need to break into your song. Wait, which topic? The sperm or the skunks? The topic we're going to talk about today. Well, we were, I mean, we were just talking about dogs getting sprayed with skunks and other offensive smelling creatures. <laughs> and then we were talking about sperm, which is our topic of the day. Which is our topic of the day, which I was about to say could potentially be the exact same thing, but it's really not nice to call boys offensive smelling creatures. So I won't do that. <laughs> because most of the time they're really not. Like my husband smells very nice the majority of the time. My son, on the other hand, questionable. Um, the dog, probably the most offensive of the household. But who, wait, Abby, your cat. My cat happens to be a boy too, by, you know, by no strange coincidence. And so um, I was just telling the ladies two nights ago, uh, my husband and I were watching TV and we, and I don't smell very well, which is kind of an advantage in my field probably, but my husband has a really good <laughs> sense of smell. So he was like, do you smell what I'm smelling? And then all of a sudden it hit me and I'm like, I do. And of course, you know, everybody knows what a skunk smells like, but I'm wondering how many of you out there have had like an animal that's brought that odor into your house because it smells like burned rubber. I mean, it just, it is the most horrible, like it doesn't even smell like the normal skunk smell. It's awful. And so we started smelling that. And as it turned out, unfortunately, our cat wasn't in the house, but apparently he had encountered Pepe Le Pew just outside our garage and the, the poor, our poor cat got sprayed in the eyes and the face. And, and normally he's a pretty like brave cat. But when my husband found him outside, he was just like whimpering. He's like, he had this little sad cry. And so here we are with this smelly, gross cat. And we're having to like wipe the skunk stuff off of him. And Did he use tomato juice? No, we ended up actually that night. We just wiped him down with soap and water, and just and actually he didn't even bite us or anything because he smelled so terrible. And we made him. That's out. pretty impressive for a cat. Yeah, I know he was miserable though because he was like he even his eye was like kind of like we were afraid something Swollen. was wrong, but but yeah, it, it actually it was okay. But I think the skunk got him right in the eye, and so um, that night we made him sleep in the garage, and he cried all night long. He was not happy, but we found out that there's a mixture of hydrogen peroxide and baking soda. And it's like, I don't know, it's like Harry Potter school of medicine. We kind of mixed some of these things <laughs> together and he's much better now. I must say much better, more quickly than I ever thought he would be. Wait, so you were inside and he was still outside by the garage and you could still smell him? Yes. Oh, it's, it's so terrible when it gets, my dog got sprayed one time and it actually happened when we were out of town in my good friend was watching our dog and we came home like four or five days later and the dog like s to get rid of that smell no, it, was... like, it takes forever forever Ugh. Do, do you guys have skunks in there in arizona and in las vegas um i mean there are parts of both of those states i think but i had never seen one until i was 
They're really cute little animals. They're as cute as they can be. I was late in my 20s and I was in residency and I had gone out for a walk one night and I saw one and I was like, You just want to stop when you see them. Don't move. Oh, (laughs) Oh, like that's, they really look like that. And then I turned right around and left. But I mean, the, the dangers to animals out here, like we had talked about the mountain lion in my backyard. Yeah. Yeah. That's a problem. The coyotes, the, the big critters, even the hawks that'll take a small, small dog or cat as, as a snack. Um, I mean, those are the, the things that we worry about here. Fortunately, the skunks, we have skunk trees. Does that count? What is that? They smell like, don't they smell, they smell bad, right? Yeah. If a tree that smells what I would assume a skunk smells like, like they smell terrible. That is funny to have to assume what a skunk smells like because growing up in Texas, I can't imagine Ugh. anybody not knowing because it's roadkill. And then you, Ew. like, if you're driving and you see a smush skunk, do not drive through it because that stuff gets on your tires and then your car is going to smell like skunk. Ew. Word of advice for somebody who's not used to skunks. Actually, what I didn't say is my very first experience was about 15 years ago. We had two beagles at the time and we had a dog door in our house. One of them got hit by a skunk and came in the dog door and couldn't get in the rest of the house. My husband and I were asleep and it was like two o'clock in the morning and we both woke up at the same time because it that and it was like down in the basement, the opposite side of our house, and that smell was so horrible, it woke us up from sleep. It was awful. <laughs> wow. You know, skunks can't kill you, but man, whew, they they're stinky. On that note, let's go to our question of the day. <laughs> okay. Our question of the day is In passing on a previous episode, you mentioned using canola oil or vegetable oil in place of lube while trying to baby. Was that a joke or real? Does the type (laughs) of oil matter? My pelvic floor physical therapist has recommended moisturizing my lady parts with olive oil every day. I wasn't sure if this would affect fertility. It sounds like a joke, but it's not. <laughs> yep, it's real. You can cook with it and moisturize with it as well. <laughs> or, you know, as one of our former guests said, coconut oil. I think that's a great idea because it smells good too, you know? But I don't know. I don't know if there's any studies on coconut oil and, and sperm motility. So, oh, Susan, you're such a buzzkill. I thought it was a great idea myself, but yeah, no, I, I mean, agree. It does smell good. It does smell good. And, you know, that type of thing. But I feel like we need to do a study about all these different oils. We should, yeah. Like, have, yeah. yeah. We should have like a, like a pharmacist come on and talk about it, like a compounding pharmacist. Mm. All the different oils that can be used. For our listener, we were really serious about that. Really. Yes. We were. We were. And, and since we're so worried about sperm and sperm function... Our topic of the day is everything you want to know about donor sperm. Let's talk about sperm, baby. Let's talk about them and me. That's Carrie, by the way. Carrie just broke out into song with us a few minutes ago, so we had to include this. Just in case you mistook me for like a professional recording or anything, it was just me. (laughs) (laughs) Carrie, I don't think you're going to be like that orthopedic surgeon at the beginning of the pandemic that had like this beautiful voice and he was like singing. Did you guys see that? He was like a surgeon and Mm -hmm. had this gorgeous voice and he made all these national news outlets because he was such a good singer. Not that you're not a good singer. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to insult you. I really didn't mean that in bad oh, way. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not a good singer. <laughs> you don't need to, like, I'm aware of that. I wrote my own song at the beginning of the pandemic and recorded it. And then I heard all of these others coming out and I'm like, well, delete. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what are we going to talk about, Susan, regarding donor sperm? Well, I think it's 
it's a good idea to kind of give our listeners an idea of, of if you are thinking about using donor sperm, whether because your partner may not have sperm or not have good quality sperm, or you may not have a male partner, either because you're in a same-sex relationship or you're just choosing to go into um, parenthood as a single woman, you know, there's lots of people who are, are kind of trying to dive into this. And, and it's kind of a, it's a little bit of a scary world to look into because it looks a lot like Amazon. Or because your partner is transitioned to male. That's the other thing that I got a sharp reminder of the other day when I looked at a, you know, couple that was male, female, and he told me that he had transitioned when I asked about doing a semen analysis. And I was like, oh, well, we're not going to do that then because you are going to have zero sperm. <laughs> so one thing that's important to know for everybody, that's probably the, the top thing on everyone's list is that no, not anyone can be a sperm donor. It's about one in a hundred guys at best who are walking through the door of any given sperm bank who actually make it through all the way to become a legit sperm donor. And in many cases, the number is actually, the percentage is actually much, much smaller. And what do you need to be a sperm donor, Carrie? Other than sperm. (laughs) When we're talking right now, we're really talking about being an anonymous sperm donor. Right. Yeah. True. But you also need sperm if you're not an anonymous sperm donor too. You have to have sperm. 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 (laughs) That is always a requirement. The the known sperm donor, we can do a whole separate episode on that one too. Yes, exactly. Um, besides needing sperm, what else do you need, Susan? So you actually have to go through a very long questionnaire that asks all kinds of personal questions like your sexual history, your medical history, um, your travel history, because if you've been to certain parts of the world at certain parts of time... Um, You can't because this is all regulated by the FDA, which is the Food and Drug Administration. It's really kind of like being a blood donor. You have a lot of the same screening tests that you have if you donate blood. I'll even go one further. It's more like being a kidney donor because you have to actually do blood tests. So being a a blood, well, maybe they do this as a blood donor and I just haven't thought about. They do. do. I just donated blood two days ago. They check your hemoglobin and your hematocrit. But think about all the FDA tests. So when you're a sperm donor, they they don't just randomly check your... HIV, syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, uh, CMV, a whole a whole panel of tests, hepatitis. Um, they send it to a specific FDA-approved lab. So you can't just send it to the random Quest or LabCorp or whatever your local lab is. It has to go to one that's got special FDA approval and certification. And so it's a higher level of standards that are being upheld to make sure that when this product from one one human's body goes into another that it has really truly been screened to the best of its ability. And that's not the only time that it's actually going to get screened. So that sperm is cryopreserved. And then what we call it is it's held in quarantine. Exactly. And it's held in quarantine for at least six months. And the reason why it's held in quarantine for six months is on the the chance that maybe somebody could contract an illness, not have developed the antibodies, they test negative at the time they donate. At six months, all of those diseases, if they would have had them at that point, they should test positive at that point. So 
they, they've had to go through infectious disease testing twice. And on that same note, you know, partners that are going to receive the sperm also have to go through that same infectious disease, disease testing. And sometimes when I talk to same-sex couples and I tell them, you know, we need to do HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, you know, infectious disease testing on both of you. I always get this funny look like for the partner who's not going to do the IUI, like, why do I have to be tested? I don't have any part in this. And that's mainly because, you know, something happened and say the partner who was going to use the sperm, say she got infected with hepatitis B or something like that. The FDA wants to know kind of where that came from. And if, you know, if, since you're sexual partners, you know, certainly you could pass it along to your, to your partner. And so that's why the FDA wants to make sure that everybody has that infectious disease testing. Now, the partner who's going to use the donor sperm gets other testing done as well, you know, things like the rubella and, and things like that. But they also, but everybody involved has to have infectious disease testing. So the donor who's going through, in addition to getting um, poked, they also get prodded as well because they have to go through the FDA exam. And what that is, is that's a, an exam by a physician and goes through and it looks to see, is there any other sign of illness that would prevent this patient from being a sperm donor? So not just the blood work that we're doing, but also is there any other sign of something that may not have shown up in their medical history that we would want to pay attention to, even as much as do they have a cold right now and maybe their sperm's not as great quality so we aren't going to use them right right at this instant because they've got a fever so their sperm is getting parboiled in their testicles and so hey let's not use it for another couple weeks. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about CMV. Can you sing that? Can you put that like kind of like rent? Can you put that in a song? Let's talk about CMV. CMV like <laughs> one, two, three. <laughs> <laughs> so Susan, what is CMV? It stands for cytomegalovirus. And the way that I normally ex explain this is that CMV is essentially a fancy cold virus. Okay. Lots of us have had CMV, but a lot of us who haven't had CMV. And the reason why there's testing for CMV is that there is a theoretical risk that if you are CMV negative and you got pregnant using CMV positive sperm, that you could end up having a baby with birth defects due to the CMV infection. So generally the recommendations are if you're CMV negative, you should use CMV negative sperm. If you're CMV positive, you can use CMV positive or negative sperm. However, there are different reproductive endocrinologists out there who have different viewpoints on these, on this. And because I know I have some colleagues that really only encourage their patients to use CMV negative sperm at any point in time. What are y'all's thoughts? I do that as well. And actually, I take it a couple of steps further. And I tell patients that, you know, this is not something that you have to do, but these are my recommendations. So I agree. If you're CMV negative, I think it's best to use CMV negative sperm. The other thing that we talk about too is blood type. If you have a negative blood type, ideally, since you have the unique ability to be able to pick your sperm donor, usually I recommend that you also pick a donor who's negative because there's some instances where if you have a negative blood type and the donor has a positive blood type, sometimes that can cause some interactions with sometimes the first pregnancy more times than not the second pregnancy. But nevertheless, if you have the ability to, to select your donor, I think it's probably best to choose a negative donor if your blood type is negative. It doesn't matter about the A, B, or O part. It just matters about the positive or negative. And in the recent past, I mean, just in the past several years, the other thing I talked to couples about is checking genetic status. 
And there's a lot of different genetic tests around. But, you know, and, and a lot of the sperm banks now will routinely check for common things, um, genetic conditions that you've probably heard of, like cystic fibrosis or Tay-Sachs or sickle cell anemia. Um, but every genetic test is a little bit different. And so I usually encourage my um, patients that are going to use donor sperm to do a genetic test and figure out if they carry any of those things. And it's not a big deal if you carry it. It's just a big deal if you select a donor who also carries that as well. So those are kind of the three things I talk to patients about. And then the other caveat too, which makes it even a little bit more complicated, is if at some point your female partner is going to use that same donor to have you know, genetically re- related SIB, you may also want to check her CMV status and genetic status and blood type as well. And, and that can make it more complicated, but I think ultimately a lot of patients want to do that if they're in a same-sex relationship. So I don't usually worry too much about the blood type. It's something to be aware of. I think there's, you know, if, if, if you have two donors that are completely equal and you're not strongly drawn towards one or the other, I think that, but I think, um, I, I think a lot of times there's, there's other things that I think, you know, we've got Rogam. Rogam's a wonderful medicine. We can, we can help with that situation. You know, these patients are obviously getting care. These aren't people who are going to, you know, go out there and have bleeding and us not know about it. So, um, just as, as a little bit different perspective. What do you think, Carrie? What do you do? So as far as blood type goes, um, I also, you know, we'll tell them about it, but don't put a huge amount of emphasis on it again, because they're getting good care and they're more likely to get Rogam in a perfect world. Yes. I would like them if they're CMV negative to have a negative donor, if their blood type is negative to have a negative donor. But I'm also acutely aware that finding a sperm donor is hard and Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily treat it as hard because I'm like, Oh, you're CMV negative. Go find a negative donor. And then when I actually think about the numbers, I'm like, all right, well, roughly 80, 85% of donors are going to be positive. So they just knocked out four fifths. Right. Yeah, it is. And if if you're CMV negative and you have a negative blood type, those are, that's really hard to find negative, negative. And and I'm assuming that they probably have some thoughts as to, well, we want them to be of either this particular ethnic heritage or have this particular skill or be this particular height or appearance or whatever. And so... Um, I do try and tell people to be realistic that this is a, these are people they are talking about. This is Burger King. You cannot have it all your way. (laughs) And that is true of all fertility treatment and all genetic testing and and donor selection in general. But, you know, I tell people, think about the most important things. And so as we're adjusting these things, you know, yes, in a perfect world, no, I don't want any of these things. But it's also important for them to be be really comfortable with who they have chosen. And so that's kind of where the balance is of, okay, they're going to get good care we can make sure that they get Rogam so I can let the blood type go. So say you've done all that as the recipient, what what do you guys require as a next step? Like say a patient has done blood testing, they've chosen their donor and kind of what's the next step that you have them do before they proceed? So we follow the ASRM guidelines, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, and that all of our individuals or couples who are using any type of third-party reproduction, so donor eggs, donor sperm, gestational carriers, um, donor embryo, we have them visit with a counselor to discuss kind of the implications of using third-party reproduction. You know, a lot of the questions about disclosure, non-disclosure, how do you tell, who do you tell, when do you tell, you know, it's all the questions that kind of first pop up in your mind of like, 
hmm, I'm thinking about using donor sperm. How does this really play out? Well, you know, it's really evolved over my career too, because I had a lot of patients early in my career that would say, you know, we don't, particularly if it was a married couple and say the husband had had a vasectomy and he didn't want to have it reversed. You know, a lot of times they would really not want to disclose that to their offspring. And, And we've always said, and I think most fertility doctors have said, you know, big secrets are not a good thing. It's better to be open. Just like if you adopted a child, just start early and and start talking to him about it. But, you know, really um, Ancestry.com and 23andMe, if anybody out there has done that, you know that it's really pushed the envelope now. And there really is no such thing as a secret when it comes to genetics. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you have a child through the use of donor sperm, if that child, you know, goes on at some point to one of those two sites or who knows what will be out there in the next 15 years or so, it will instantly potentially come up and say that this child has, you know, siblings that are very closely related to them. And so, you know, I think it's just important that, you know, just, you know, I think you can frame it in a way where we really wanted to have you and we had to go through all these steps and you're so important to us. And, you know, this was something that we don't want to keep a secret from you, but, you know, we just want you to know that this was a way that you were conceived. Um, so it's, it's really kind of changed the way we we talk to patients, I think, now because of that. And we really encourage patients to talk to their kids about it from an early point in life. Like as soon as they're reasonably able to understand it, start telling them because um, little kids have little reactions. Big kids have big reactions. And the reaction that a child has at age, you know, five or eight or 10 or 12 is going to be very different than the reaction that they have when they find out when they're 25 and their, you know, fiance has given them 23andMe as a wedding present and they find out all of a sudden dad's not dad. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of great children's books out there nowadays to kind of help make it just part of their normal life. Yeah. Because I think it just makes kids as they get older, they think, okay, if mom and dad lied about this to me or or, my mom lied to me about this, then what else did she lie to me about, you know? So I think the earlier you can introduce it, the better. And I think there's some really good ways to do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of coming back around to like donor sperm itself. The next big thing is when you go to select your donor sperm, there's generally kind of three major categories. So there's what we would call ICI or intracervical ready. You can have your IUI ready sperm for insemination, and then you have ART or IVF sperm. Would you ladies like to kind of describe the differences in those? So ICI sperm, intracervical insemination sperm, that's kind of like the guy ejaculates and they freeze the sperm. That's sometimes they're able to do home inseminations where they actually put the sperm in the vagina. Um, So IUI sperm stands for intrauterine insemination. And I think most of us here probably do that. I would guess that Carrie and Susan's practices Mm -hmm. do that primarily. Mm -hmm. And that's a process where the sperm has been washed. So the sperm has been separated from the seminal plasma. It's concentrated into a small volume. And then basically you would come into the office at the right time, much like a pap smear. So a speculum would be placed in the vagina. A little catheter would be put up through the cervical canal. Um, And and basically the sperm would be injected up inside the uterine cavity. So that's a bit more successful because you bypass the acidic pH of the vagina, you bypass the cervical mucus, and you just get the sperm and the egg closer together. And then the third type of sperm has a really low volume of sperm. And that's the kind that we use if we're going to do in vitro fertilization. 
So if you were going to do in vitro fertilization, we'd stimulate you and get maybe 10 or 15 eggs, and we'd literally need 10 or 15 moving sperm. And so it's a really small quantity. It's probably less expensive, um, but it can't be used for intrauterine insemination in the office. Very good. So those are kind of the three kinds that you can order. I always tell people it's it's online shopping at its finest. <laughs> a lot of people ask me like, oh, are there, you know, are there sperm banks here in Las Vegas? I'm like, well, no, but it doesn't matter because even if there was and you lived right next to it, you would still be accessing everything online. And so there's several sperm banks thread, spread throughout the country. And as long as they're accredited and as long as they send us the appropriate information, um, for the most part, I don't really have strong opinions about which ones my patients use. We'll otherwise just say, wherever you find the donor that you really like, we're good. And, and so they will, they'll pay for the sperm sample. They'll decide how many they want. And our clinic will fill out some paperwork as well. And so what will happen is once both sets of paperwork are complete, the and the patient tells the, the sperm bank, okay, I want you to release X number of vials to the, the center. The sperm bank will then send us those vials. So I always tell people, please send two vials because I always want to have one in backup. You know, for example, I had a, a patient uh, yesterday, I guess it was, who she, she happened to absolutely fall in love with a donor and it happened. He was a retired donor, meaning he no longer was donating. And it was literally his very last vial. It was an unwashed vial, but we were intending to do IUI. She still decided she wanted to go ahead and do it. And unfortunately that vial was not a particularly good one because it was literally the last one. And, and we didn't have any backups. And so the sperm count, we're typically looking for an IUI sample to be about 5 million total moving sperm in the sample or higher. And that one happened to be a little bit lower at quite a bit lower at about half a million. And so we went ahead and did it because we didn't have any backup. We wanted to make sure we got advantage of the cycle, but that'll be something where we fill out all of the, and she will fill out all of the appropriate paperwork to submit back to the bank. Um, that, that happens really few and far between. Like that's a maybe once, twice a year event. Um, but I do like to have two samples so that just in case one gets abducted by aliens, we've always got a backup. So another thing that I always like to talk to my um, people who are using donor sperm about is thinking about the future because a lot of people, I would say most people would like to maintain paternity between their children, whether it's me, myself, just having my children or me and my same sex partner having children, like that maintaining paternity thing, it, it's a big, it's a big thing. And it's a very important thing for, for the family unit. Even if you haven't decided the option. Exactly. Exactly. And so realize that sperm that's available now may not be available in one, two, three, four, five years from now. So if you are thinking about the remote possibility of there being more children that need to maintain that paternity buy extra sperm. Okay. The nice thing about most of these sperm banks is you can buy sperm, keep it at their sperm bank. And if you decide down the road that you don't want it, a lot of them, they may not pay you back the entire price, but they will purchase it back from you if it stays there. So it takes a little bit of the risk out of there, but always, always go a little extra mile because, you know, once it's gone, it's gone. And, and that's something that you don't want to look back on. 
Yeah. Tracking down those sperm donors. If you need to, like if something comes up, if you, if you find you really, really want a sibling and there's no more vials left, sometimes they can do it, but it's definitely not a guarantee. So much better to have more than you need from the outside. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think we've had a good discussion today all about sperm. This is always a good thing to talk about. Okay. One quick random question first before we close. How much sperm paraphernalia is at your respective offices? Not necessarily in your personal office, but just in your office in general. My office, I can think of uh, magnets that are decorated like various story tale princes. My favorite are the pens that when you tip them up and down, they have the little sperm that swim up and down. Those are my favorite. My favorite one was when I was at a meeting one time, it was like a pad, you know, that you put your mouse on, your computer mouse on. Sperm moved around when your mouse pad moved around. Yeah. Because it had like gel or liquid or something in it. It's kind of interesting. And then of course, there's the never to be forgotten sperm bike that is ever present at many of the conferences we go to where you can ride the giant sperm. Yes, there is the sperm bike. (laughs) Yeah, we need a picture of that somehow. (laughs) We do, we do. So to our audience, thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on our Ask the Docs segment. So don't hold back. Uh, The more entertaining, the better. We'll see you all soon. All right. We'll see you soon. Bye, guys.